This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Since 2002, Merch Table has operated and managed online stores for hundreds of successful musicians, record labels, comedians, artists, and small businesses. Big or small, set up shop today by visiting merchtable.com. It's a big day for us on the future of what, as today we join the Jabberjaw Media Podcasting Network. Jabberjaw is unique for the number of music-related podcasts hosted by actual musicians that it carries. And in honor of this, we decided to talk to three musicians making their mark on the podcast chart. It's all coming up on the future of what. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Rishikesh Herway from Song Exploder. Rishikesh, thanks so much for joining me today on The Future of What. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to talk to you because, first of all, you've got an awesome podcast that is very popular. People are really loving it, which is rad. Thanks a lot. Thank you. But also, you're kind of part of this new breed, which we are finding on the internet now of musicians starting their own podcasts, which has been surprisingly slow to get off the ground for some reason. Yeah, that's that's true. Although I, I do think we're going to see more and more of it. I felt like there was an uptick last year, and I've, I've heard about stuff that's coming this year. I feel like there's already going to be a lot more. Definitely. And we are very excited to join this week, the Jabberjaw Podcasting Network, and that is mainly music podcasts that are hosted by musicians. So it's actually sort of a funny little enclave. But yeah, it has been it has been a sort of a slow burn. Like every comedian has probably six podcasts that they're currently doing. Right. And have been for like the last five years. It's funny how musicians sort of took so long. Like, do you have a theory about that? Do you can you imagine why that is? Well, for me, I only got into podcasts because of listening to comedians doing podcasts. <laughs> so I had to listen to them on tour for a few years to really internalize the idea of what a podcast is and how one would make one before I could even think of it as something that I would do myself. It was like the thing that we would listen to in between records on, on tour. That's fascinating. That's the new thing. Because when I was in a band and on tour, it's so long ago now that it, you know, we didn't have any of the fun internet related stuff that you could listen to or satellite radio or any of that stuff. We just literally had to play radio baseball. Do you know what that is? No. <laughs> it was this awesome tour van game that everybody used to play in the like early 90s when you would just poke the radio button, the scan button, uh-huh. and whatever it landed on, like whoever was up to bat, you had to know the name of the song, the name of the artist. And if you could get a home run, if you knew the song title, the artist, the name of the album, and the year of release, that was a home run. Oh, wow. That's pretty good. It was a good game. And it took a really long time. So it was great for like, you know, going across, you know, North Dakota. <laughs> it like, right. It was a fun one. Yeah. You'd have to know your country. Yeah, totally. So tell me how you came up with the idea for Song Exploder. Well, it really did start somewhere uh, along those lines, even before before I had an iPod or anything like that. I remember a girl I was dating as a tour present for me burned a whole bunch of This American Life episodes on CD. And that was the first time I was sort of breaking up music by listening to stories like that. Wow. And that was a long time ago, but I think the, the first idea for Song Exploder was really not, it wasn't really like a spark. It was much more of a long, slow burn of just being a musician and having those kinds of conversations with other musicians about how they were writing their songs and how they were making their music. You know, I just always wanted to try and learn for my own sake and and see, because, you know, I, I was doing everything DIY and I didn't know, especially when it came to recording stuff, you know, I had Pro Tools uh, eventually. First I was four track and then eight track and then and then eventually moved up to Pro Tools. But for the most part, you know, I had no idea what I was doing in terms of engineering. So I'd, I'd always try and find out. I'd, I'd hear something cool that somebody I knew had made and then try and ask them how they, how they did it. But it didn't feel like anything special or specific. It felt like those were the conversations everybody was having. And I think everybody still does. But then Song Exploder as a podcast kind of really was born somewhere in 2013 when I had this lull in my musical life. Like I'd finished 
my last record. I'd finished touring around it. I had scored a couple of films and the last one had premiered. And I kind of was looking at the next few months of trying to figure out what I was going to do. And it was really like a great way to procrastinate trying to make the next record. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a great idea. So did you just sit down? I mean, how did you, you know, how did you get your first guest? Did you, was it someone you knew or how did you, was it just like a, a favorite song? Like, what did you do? Yeah, the first several guests were just friends of mine from music. You know, it was mostly people in LA that I had played shows with or, you know, had some kind of musical history with. So the first guest was Jimmy Tamborello. He and I had just toured together recently. I have met him in 2003, so I've known him for a while. And we had just done a, a tour, his solo project, Intel, and me and Giannik had gone on this tour. But then it was right around the time when the Postal Service was doing their 10th anniversary shows. So I, it felt like a good time to talk about that because it was in the moment and he was actively reconstructing the songs for their live show. So taking the parts and figuring out how they were going to arrange them and, and split them up between the live band and laptops and stuff like that. So I knew he was actively involved with the pieces of the recording. So I asked him if, if I could come talk to him about one of those songs. So with all the other guests that you've talked to, when you break the song down in the episode and you play, let's say, just the drum track, mm -hmm. do you get those stems from the artist or, you know? Yeah. Okay, good. So people contribute those themselves. Yeah. And, and really a lot of times, I mean, the show wouldn't be possible without that. You know, it just that's the, it's the formal conceit of the show. And that sometimes meant that some episodes that have been exciting, or, you know, that were, that were looking like possibilities ended up going away because the stems weren't available or at the, you know, the last minute, it turns out that the, not everybody was aware that that was a requirement. And then things had to stop moving forward because somebody wasn't comfortable with it or they weren't available or something like that. Right. Totally. But you have gotten some very big guests on, and I think that's probably testament to how fun the show is and how people are really enjoying it. You know, I mean, you got Solange. <laughs> like, yeah, that's these are these are pretty big things. How are you now getting your guests? I mean, I, I assume that you've pretty much interviewed. You know, you've interviewed your buds. Yeah. So then you you know you go through to get some bigger artists. How do you how do you get those artists? I've tried to sign up for the mailing list. You know, like the press release mailing list of as many good PR firms as I can. I've gone to you know just gone to the places and the publicists that I know. Some of them I know just from having worked with them in my own musical life. and Or besides my own music, I also worked at Danger Bird Records for, for a while as a creative director. And so I dealt with publicists for a lot of other bands as well. So I knew, knew some people and I know kind of people who I, I thought were representing bands that I thought was into. So I wrote to them and said, will you just put me on your press release distribution? And then, you know, every day I go and I look in that folder and I look at what's coming up. And then I write to them and say if they would want to do a song exploder. Cool. Now it's gotten to the point where there have been some, you know, people just reach, reaching out to me specifically for that. I, I mean, there that happens, I guess, regularly. But uh, every now and then, it's somebody crazy. Like the the YouTube episode of Song Exploder came about because their their publicist said, "Would you like to do an episode with YouTube?" I would have never thought to do that. Wow. Yeah. No, that's pretty great. And I mean, and it means you're doing something that people are into. Yeah. Which is really cool. So let's talk. This is a music business podcast, The Future of What, of course. So I'm always interested in everybody's business <laughs> angles to everything. So how has this podcast been for your musical career? <laughs> like, do you still have a musical career or is this taking up your whole life? It has. Yeah, it's definitely taken up a lot more of my life than I expected it to when I started. I thought it would be something that could be, I guess, a form of relief for the inconsistency of you know music income and something that I could do kind of in the background between recording and touring but this is just my personal inclinations I, I end up it's a lot easier for me to do something that has a deadline and that is like sort of short term than it is for me to do something long term like make a record yeah like I, I think of the I have like a mental checklist of all the things that I need to check off and I, and I immediately go to the things that I can check off more quickly. So it's like, okay, it'll take me a week and a half to make this song exploder episode versus it'll take me two and a half years to make this record. <laughs> so 
the timeline on the record just ends up getting pushed further and further back. So that's been kind of one of the consequences. But around the same time as starting the podcast, I also started a new band. And that has been, that's the first time that I've had like a band with a, like a full-time partner, you know, like I make the music and my partner in it is Keith Stanfield and he writes the lyrics and does the vocals. And it's been nice because he's also incredibly busy with non-musical stuff because he's an actor. He was in Atlanta and I just saw him this weekend in Get Out. And so he is constantly like flying around and shooting stuff. And then we get together when he's free and we make some music and then we go off and we do our other stuff and we get together and we make music. And so it feels like music making is still a big part of my life, even though it isn't as regular as it used to be. And it it isn't as regular as I probably would like, ideally. But that's funny because that's something we talk about all the time on this show. We talk about how all of us seem to start out the same way in our teen years. We're like, I want to be in an indie band, man. Like, I want to make it and tour the country and have hit songs that I wrote myself. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of like everybody's dream. And then as we all get older, like things come up and then we all sort of, you know, a lot of us stay in the music business, but perhaps in a way that we didn't expect. (laughs) Yeah, that's for sure. This is there. There's nothing about this that I was expected. <laughs> and yet it is really, really cool. And people are really excited about it. And I think it, I think the great thing about Song Exploder is that it brings that musical process in these bite-sized chunks so that people can, you know, you can listen to an 11 minute segment and you can actually get a feel for an artist's process. And I think that's one of those things that's so opaque to most people who aren't musicians. Yeah. That it's really doing a service. You know what I mean? It's not only is it fun to listen to, but it's doing them a service. They're, they're learning something. I appreciate that. I, it's funny because I do think it's born out of like the inside baseball of music. Like I think that it really requires that as, as like the main ingredient of the show. But then I try and make it for the complete opposite. You know, that it's, it's definitely not aimed at musicians for musicians' sake as it is for people who are non-musicians. Well, you and I are kind of trying to do the same thing then because I'm really trying to get, the, I mean, I want musicians to listen to this podcast too because of course this right, of affects course. their business. Yeah. But at the same time, I want it to be transparent enough so that we're not just talking about, you know, royalties and mechanicals and all these little things and never explaining anything and it's all total inside baseball yeah. terminology. You know, I'm trying to make this music business a little bit more clear so that people understand, you know, this is not just a world where, you know, labels take all the artists' money and artists are just, you know, these helpless victims flopping around. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, the business of Song Exploder, to whatever extent you can think of it as a business, is definitely everything about this show that is not music was informed by my career. Again, if you're going to be generous and call it a career, my <laughs> career as a musician. Right. Like everything that I ever sort of learned the hard way in music. I felt like I got to reapply those things with the podcast. Isn't that great? It is. Yeah. It, it, it feel, I feel like I, I saved time and it makes me feel a little bit better about how hard some of those lessons were to learn because I felt like I can apply them again. Well, on that note, I thought that was very helpful <laughs> and a perfect place to stop. <laughs> awesome. So Rishikesh, thanks so much for being with us on The Future of What today. Thanks so much for having me.
Bottle Up and Explode by Elliot Smith. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Shane Told of Silverstein and the Lead Singer Syndrome podcast. Shane, welcome to The Future of What? Thank you for having me. This is lovely. I'm excited. We're co... What do you, what do you call that? Well, you're on the same record label, your label mates. So are we like podcast right, yeah, network mates? Like podcast mates? <laughs> We're podcast mates. <laughs> network mates. That That's sounds... Cool. Network mates sounds like too, too nerdy, too technical, you know? <laughs> But no, I, I mean, yeah, I'm excited. I mean, I mean, Jabberjaw, it's 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 a cool network. There, there's a lot of diversity, but it's all kind of based around music. And in the podcast world, you'd think, you know, music would be the dominating category or, you know, subject, but it's really not. No, it's no? not. Yeah. And it's kind of weird to me. I know. It's funny. And also, I've really been noticing lately, like, I've been excited about Jabberjaw because there's like your show, there's my Carrera show, there's a bunch where they're actually musicians doing podcasting. And that's, I've been so surprised at the tiny number of musicians who've gotten into podcasting. Yeah. Weird. I mean, you'd think that so many more would do it, you know, because it's like, you kind of have the, if you're a career musician, you kind of have the lifestyle, like you, you have the time usually <laughs> to do it. It's true. I mean, I think a lot of musicians though are kind of self-conscious, I think. And, you know, I think that goes with the territory a little bit. And the other thing is I would only have started my podcast I only started it because, well, first of all, it's a hilarious name <laughs> and because it's like an actual unique idea. Right. You know, I mean, if there's not a musician interviewing a musician, isn't really that unique idea, I should say. But like the idea of it being lead singers and stuff, like there's at least a concept there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So, so yeah, so that is, is a thing. I think like, I don't know, I think unless you have a great idea and something really different, you know, maybe it's best just to stay out of the way. You don't want to have like too much stuff watered down, you know? I know, but I always quote somebody who said to me like well over a year ago, like two years ago, they were like, you know, if there was a podcast that was just like Dave Grohl and his friends just like sitting around drinking beers talking, everybody would listen to that. You know, people would be interested because That's those true. are, you know, those are people whose lives you're interested in. And instead, it really hasn't been that. It's been like every single comedian on the entire planet has like at least one, yeah. if not like five podcasts, like journalists, like all these sort of culture figures, but but musicians, not so much so. Anyway, I'm glad you decided to do it. <laughs> no, it's been great. I've been doing it now 67 episodes in and having a blast. Yeah, you, we're at right about at the same amount. I think we're at like 69, so we're, we're really on track. Cool. What made you think of doing a podcast? I mean, was it that you got the idea for the name and you were like, oh my God, that's an awesome idea? Yeah, well, you know, it, it actually stemmed from a long time ago. It was a buddy from Census Fail and some magazine set up this thing where we were supposed to interview each other for like a magazine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I took it like really seriously. I wanted to like, you know, ask good, relevant questions. I didn't want it to suck, you know? So I took the time and, and he kind of said after, Oh, you know, like you really did a good job. Like you asked really good questions. And he did the same for me. And I was like, okay, well, musicians interviewing musicians is like, maybe that's better than just some journalist that doesn't necessarily isn't able to relate, you know, mm -hmm. one singer to another. And then so that uh, combination of the name, Lead Singer Syndrome, I was like, okay, I got to do something. And I originally thought of doing it as like a YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. But then I realized that was just going to be way too much work with figuring out how to film it and edit. And I don't know anything about editing video, you know. So I just decided, hey, like a podcast format for this is probably the way to go. And I didn't know that much about how to actually go about producing a podcast and, and getting it on iTunes and that whole thing. So Jabberjaw helped me out and, and here we are. And now I'm, I guess I'm kind of an expert now, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> right. If you do it, then you just get better at it. It's weird how that works. I, yeah, I know. I know it's crazy. <laughs> like even, even like things like I do all the graphics, you know, for my show uh -huh. and I'm not a graphics guy, but I like feel pretty confident now, like with my Photoshop <laughs> skills. So it's been beneficial to me in so many ways. Yeah. That's amazing. So you guys got signed to Victory, which is a big independent label in the U.S. And did you guys at any point have a manager? Like, do you have a manager? Did you have a manager? How did that work out? Or was it just you and the label? We sold 100,000 records and we didn't have a manager. Okay. Ever. Right. So basically our drummer and myself, we managed the band. We made the business decisions Again, it's just so funny to talk about because like we didn't even like the word career. If someone said career to me, I would laugh because mm -hmm. 
because it's like Tom Cruise has a career. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I didn't even think like of bands like you know punk bands that I liked like No Effects or Rancid or Bad Religion. I didn't even think of those bands as like having a career. You know, it it, it was just not. I don't know. It, it didn't really make sense. So we didn't. We just did whatever we thought was good, and it was just the two of us. And basically, we were like, well, we're making enough money that we can live and do it this way. And if we work with some manager that's maybe going to fuck everything up and then take like what 15 or 20% like off the top, like we were smart enough to run the numbers and be like, well, if they take all this money off the top, we aren't going to have any money at the end of the tour. You know what I mean? So we, our first manager, we explained this to him and he said, well, yeah, like I'll work on the net. And, you know, we were able to pay him, I think we paid him like 15% of net, which is basically kind of like a sixth member of the band, which to me is the way all management situations should work. I think it's the most fair. And he was our manager for a while. His name was David Leskowitz. He was Primus's manager for many years. He might still be, does shows out in, in San Francisco. And he was terrific, you know, and you know, over time, like people change, things change. And, you know, we ended up moving, moving to a different manager and then another manager. But over the last, couple years myself and paul our drummer have been managing the band and just actually recently our drummer paul started managing other bands and kind of came to us and was like hey i want to like actually manage our band like i i know it's weird when i'm our drummer calling like a company but i have my own company now i'm managing other bands i've been successful so can i just do this and so now so yeah so we're self-managed but our drummer also manages other bands Cool. That's, yeah, that's an interesting way to do it. Yeah. Not particularly common, but, you know, having been in the business 17 years, that's not surprising, actually. I mean, it's kind of a wise move. But I have some regrets about that, too, because in the beginning, we were fighting for ourselves and it was us and the label and there was kind of no one between. Mm -hmm. Like I guess our agent at some points would handle some of the management side of things. We didn't really know that's what was happening at the time. Your booking agent? Yeah, our booking agent, yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of a thing. But then at the same time, I feel like the label was able to, to sort of dictate and kind of, strong, I don't want to say strong arm, because that sounds a little like crazy, but and sometimes it was crazy. But, you know, the label was very like intense and hands-on and kind of called the shots and sort of maybe took advantage of us in, in certain ways when we were young and as like, many labels do. So there were some regrets that we didn't have like a seasoned veteran to be like, hey, maybe I should look over this royalty statement. We didn't have somebody like that doing it. Right. So that was probably pretty stupid. But all the money we, we would have had to pay a manager, especially like the manager that gets paid on the gross, we would have lost way more money in the long run than having that manager look over the statements and being like, I don't know. Well, we don't have money to sue the label anyways. We're out at them. So whatever. You just kind of have to live with it. Right. You know, so. You guys are an interesting test case for me because what I say on the show all the time is that we have this narrative in American culture about sort of like a lot of what you said, like we're doing it for fun. We weren't really thinking about it in, a, in business terms. And I'm like, that is so true with every band. Like I was, it was the same in my bands. You know, we never thought of it like, mm -hmm. oh, you know, I have to think about my taxes or whatever. Mm -hmm. We were just like, oh my God, we, we went on tour and people actually showed up at the shows. We were just like so thrilled that people cared. But there does come a time in a band's life where you actually do have to say, you know, something, this is my job. Yep. And I do make money from it. And like you said, you know, you guys were like, oh, if we gave a manager a percentage of gross, we would be losing money. So you did start treating it like a business, even if you weren't really thinking about it like that. Yeah, well, we, we, always, we still treated it like a business. Like, it was just that, that we were trying to just be like sustainable. Like we, were, we wanted to be able to come home from a tour and be able to make more merch so we could go on tour again. You know <laughs> right. what I mean? We wanted to be able to, like, it was more like that than like trying to get, get rich or even get paid because we were also smart enough that like we moved back in with our parents, <laughs> you know, like yeah. we, none of us paid rent for years. Like we were all living at home. Well, we weren't even living at home because we were never home because we were touring like literally 10 months a year. And so, you know, so that's just the way we approached it. But I mean, I remember our first van which like I traded my car for. And I remember I used to, I don't even know why I did this because I'm a nerd, I guess. I would write down like the mileage of the van and how much we spent on gas and, you know, and all this stuff. And I would keep track of that and I'd keep track of the receipts and everything just because I thought I should. And then, and I, you know, there's always like a fear that 
a merch guy or a crew guy or even a band member is going to like go into the cash box and like pull out the money. And I, and I didn't want to be me handling that stuff. I didn't want to be accused of stealing money or anything like that, you know, because you hear things about that in bands. So I felt like it was appropriate just for us to kind of do our own sort of accounting. But yeah, in terms of like things like taxes and shit like that, we didn't know. I just, I just would hand money out to the band members and be like, yeah, probably just like keep it under your mattress or something. Like don't put it in a bank account. We don't want to raise any, like any questions. Right. But when that money started growing bigger and bigger and I had like, I remember I had like $15,000 in cash in like a, in a safe deposit box. I was like, yeah, I probably, we probably need to like call a business manager because I don't want to like go to prison, you know? Right. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, but that's, you know, that's kind of how it goes, right? It's like you start it as fun. You start it as the, your passion. And then it ends up yeah. like the business part kind of grows on you, like in this sneaky way. I mean, yeah. if you're if you're being successful and if you're making money. It does. And there's also res- you have reservations about that, too. And like me thinking I was like punk or like wanting to be punk or, you know, that whole thing, which like is now that I'm in my like I've turned 36 this week. Like I kind of roll my eyes, right? you know, when I think about this stuff. And when, especially when I hear younger people saying, oh, well, you know, that's not cool or that's not punk rock or whatever. And it's like, you look back at the bands that I looked up to and thought were so cool and they might've acted like they were like punk or too cool or whatever, but they cared. Like they cared about how many kids were at the show. They cared about like how much money they were making. You know, it really wasn't, all about it was just as much a especially like in places like los angeles like it was just as much about entertainment and the entertainment business in punk rock as it was in like hair metal sure you know up to a point absolutely it's just it was it just it was on a different scale absolutely yeah you know and that's something i like i couldn't wrap my head around that idea for years like until maybe even recently i didn't really understand that basically all walks of life in the music industry it's entertainment i've been wanting to say we're the bad religion of emo i've wanted to say (laughs) this for many years i don't know when i could start saying it and people won't roll their eyes just start saying it but i'm trying i (laughs) just Just do it it. yeah just start saying it why not that that's totally legit yeah bad religion of emo but you know i think it really is we (laughs) we put out a record like it like clockwork every two years so there's an odd number a year oh three oh five oh seven oh nine etc there's a silverstein record that's come out right and we've we that's really that's really happened so i think that that consistency and we always tour just as hard every record cycle i think that consistency along with the fact that we actually try to write good songs and we never phone anything in i think that those two things together are a big contributing factor to our longevity. Definitely. And also like we've switched labels multiple times and people are always asking me, well, why do we do this? And it's not because of bad blood. It's not because they, we, you know, there's, there was any kind of issues. You generally speaking, it's just like, you have to, you, your career has to be, Oh God, I just said the word career. Ha ha. You have to think about <laughs> look what, what I did to you. <laughs> Oh, damn music business. There should be a bell somewhere. Ding, ding, ding. I win. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Um, now I completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> you switch record labels because for your career. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. My career that I have, because I'm a career. <laughs> musician. Guy, I'm a career. I'm a, music, I'm a musician. I'm an artist. Okay? Yes. Yes. I think, you know, you have to take each step of the way as that step at that time. And as you know, how much music, the music industry has changed in the last few years, like, why would you stay with the same label if there's a better option? Right. You know what I mean? You need to be constantly fighting, like fighting for inches almost, you know, every step of the way to make things better and, and be able to sustain this. And that's where we're at now. Like, you know, we're 17 years in, we're already thinking about what we're going to do for year 20, you know, and, and, and how can we get there? And, and who can help us do it and what can we do to do it? And that's just the way we kind of operate now. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, on that note, Shane Told is the lead singer of the band Silverstein, and he also hosts the podcast Lead Singer Syndrome. So Shane, thank you so much for coming on The Future of What today. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm, I, I wish you all the best of success in everything you're doing with all your endeavors as well. 
That was Ghost by Silverstein. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Braunohler wanted a face towel with his face on it. Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to the future of what? We're talking to Joe Pug. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you here. Yeah, this is great. So we're talking to you today about sort of your whole life and career. So don't be intimidated. <laughs> Just tell us everything. Yes, we want to know all the details. Not much to learn. But. You have a very cool podcast called The Working Songwriter. Yes. And I think your podcast and my podcast overlap in certain ways. But mine is kind of more like I'm interested in the music business angle. Mm. And what I, but I, what I love about what you are doing and what you're talking to your, the artists you talk to about is the fact that this is a job. Yes. And that is such a big part that I keep trying in every episode to get across to the listeners. You know, this yeah. is a job and it's crazily enough, it's not a job for everybody. Mm -mm. You know, there are millions of people who love to play guitar or bass or whatever, mm -hmm. but really do they want to do the hard grind of living on the road? I mean, you just had your first baby. Yeah. Here you are in Portland. We're having snowpocalypse. Yeah. You're away. Your wife has a job. I, you know? Know. I mean, this yeah. is not, this is not a joke. This is like the real deal. This is real life. Yeah. yeah. I think the important part of understanding that it's a job is, so if your goal is to make art, well, how do you make art? You need, you need to take care of like food and shelter first before you can make art. Right. And so to take care of food and shelter, you have to make money and to make money, you have to run a business. And so I have always looked at running the business as it is an act of love for me because it is allowing me to make art. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, I, I would have preferred to have done it by being independently wealthy, but <laughs> wouldn't we all, <laughs> it's not the case. And so there's just a few things that life asks of you to take care of business wise. And then from there, you can kind of do whatever you want. And for me, that's to write songs and, and play them for people. So take us back to the beginning. How did you get started being a musician? And how did you sort of come onto this path of actually being a career musician, a working, touring, serious yeah. musician? I was living in Chicago in my early 20s. And I was working during the day, building houses and playing open mics at night. And it was just one of those things where I believed in myself and I was also getting enough feedback from people saying, that was a good gig. Why don't you come play this gig over here? So it went from open mics to opening for bands that would come through town, like your band Horse Feathers. I met them very early on. And then my big kind of break was someone gave my first album to the songwriter Steve Earle, and he was getting ready to do a big tour behind an album of all Towns Van Zant songs that he had covered. So it was a solo tour for him. And he heard the album of mine and really liked it. And he took me on the road in America for two months and in Europe for two months. And I got to every night I would play by myself and then Steve would play. And wow. he exposed me to his entire audience across the world. 
and I've been doing this ever since. And that's really a trial by fire because you were you were in a situation where you were like, okay, now I'm touring. Now I'm a touring artist. So you got to find that out. I mean, from my perspective, yeah. you know, I run a label. Every single day I get emails from young bands who say, we want to be working musicians. We want to do this. We want your label to support us. Mm-hmm. And the bottom line that I always think is, what happens if I say, okay, great, I'll support you. You go on your first tour ever and you find out, oh my God, the floor is hard. I miss my girlfriend. Yeah. I hate playing, you know, in these freezing venues with four people. Yeah. I mean, there are bad, it is not always fun no. to do this job. So it's like that is really to have gone through that and then come out the other side and been like, you know something, I love this. I want to do this. Yeah. is amazing. I think there's nothing wrong with people doing it for a while and realizing it's not for them. But it's really, it's been neat for me as I've gotten older. I've been doing this for about 10 years. And it really is neat to look around the people my age who have been doing it for the same amount of time. And I'm sure for you, you've gone through many incarnations in the music business. It must be really cool to look around to see your few peers that still hung on and continued to do it. And there's a really, there's an unspoken bond between me and those folks. So tell us for the people who are listening, who are young musicians trying to, you know, figure out what this job is like, Mm -hmm. what is your year like? Not necessarily, I'm trying, I'm not trying to give you, get you to give me an average, but just like. Like, what was last year like? What did you do? Did you write a record? Did you record? Did Mm -hmm. you tour? Like, how much did you do all of those things? Well, it's an interesting question for me right now because I actually just made a big sea change in how I'm doing things. So we released an album in 2015. And up until then, we'd do the deal where it would be like, take six months to record an album and wait for the business apparatus to get in place to release it and then go on tour for about a year and a half and do, you know, 200 shows a year. and I just got to the point with that where I felt like it, for me at least, was kind of an antiquated model and way of going about things. And so I'm seeking now to switch it up and think of my career much more as like a like a stand-up comic almost would think of their career, like trying to have new material out yearly or every 18 months as much as possible, and then doing deals where I you know, tour on weekends and fly out and do that and go to a region, play Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then go home. And I think I'm shooting to be able to make a living if I can do 80 to 90 shows a year and then be home, record at the place and do the podcast monthly. That would be a sustainable place for me to be, you know, having a family and stuff like that. So we'll see. It's, It's a really big change. And this last year was really good. It worked really well. But who knows, that might be because I spent 10 years engendering goodwill by touring so much and stuff like that. Right. And that might be a, an expendable resource. Or it might not be. You know, being able to come here to Portland, which I didn't even hit last year, I've never come to the Doug Fur and had it be sold out ahead of time, and it is this time. Right. And so I think to myself, well, maybe it's because I haven't been here in 18 months. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and people feel like, they won't be able to see me six months from now, so they buy the ticket. Right. So I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. Right. I mean, it's always a work in progress. That's how everybody's career, you're trying to figure it out, definitely. But it sounds like, I mean, you're sort of making the decisions based on the, you know, the 10 years of hard work that you already put in. And that's, I think that's a a big deal. I mean, I think it's important to to point out, you did do 200 shows a year. For 10 years. For 10 years. You know, that puts you in a different position, you know. Absolutely. Than someone who's just walking up to the mic for the first time. And they're like, well, I did a show. Yeah. So I'm going to go home now and you guys call me when I'm famous. Well, yeah. And, and also, I mean, <laughs> like, it, just because I'm not doing 200 shows, I mean, like the work needs to continue. I mean, it's got to be, got to figure out ways to put out great music and great material every 18 months. Focus on that. I'm focusing on this podcast right now because really what I want it to be. I got so tired of every album cycle, you know, paying a publicist a lot of money to beg people for the keys to the car. You mm. know what I mean? And I was like, well, maybe if I can do this monthly thing where I bring in listeners and I give them something every month, maybe when it's time to put out the new album, I'll be able to just put this in the pockets of thousands of people on that feed. And that has been the case we've had a really good year with this and so when i release an album later this year i'll be able to get it to people immediately and not have to ask anyone for permission 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so I hope it can work. I got a pretty good feeling that it will. Cool. And you're still feeling the album cycle, right? You're still feeling like a full album because so many yeah. different, like when you look at the business across genres, mm -hmm. one thing that I've been blown away by is when you look at the hip hop world, mm -hmm. people in the hip hop world can make their whole year on a single. Yeah which is like so different from the indie rock world, mm -hmm. you know, because we're still very beholden to the album. Yes. And I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. And I don't know if that's ever going to change or if it's, you know, this is just, we're all set in our ways and this is how it's going to be. But what you just said about giving people something more yeah. each year, that sort of made me wonder, do you feel like maybe you could be putting some stuff out like a little sooner than when you have an album ready? I think definitely. I think I'd like to just get to a point where I can, be delivering people really high quality stuff, whether that's music or an interview on a yearly basis, on a monthly basis. So then I can monetize it by saying, Hey, by the way, I'm coming to the Pacific Northwest this weekend and people come out, you know, and I can just kind of pick and choose when I choose to turn that goodwill into money. You yeah. know what I mean? And like I said, the last year, 2016, may have been a nightmare politically, but it was a good year for business for me. And I, I'm hoping that this model can work. We'll see, though. I think this is fascinating. I think you're really smart because one of the things we've been talking about for the you know two and a half years that we've been doing our podcast is mm -hmm. what is up with musicians? Like, why are musicians so noticeably absent from the podcast market? The podcast market is has exploded, and the comedians totally got that. They got on board long ago and they figured out that this is, you know, it's like they're not on their podcasts doing jokes. No. They're on their podcasts talking about the issues that they're interested in communicating and with communicating their with their audiences and their audiences love it because they feel I love it. I love yeah. to listen to, you know, Hari Kondabolu and, yeah. and Kamau Bell talk about politics. I love that. Yeah. And I feel close to them and I'm like, I can't wait to see them when they come to town. When they come to town, I'm going. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Because you feel connected and it's another connection point. Yes. And the idea that most musicians have like not gotten on the bandwagon is crazy. So I think you're it's nuts. super smart. It's nuts. I, I was a big podcast fan because I toured so much. And I listened to these comedians, and a lot of them didn't have big followings before these podcasts. Then the next thing you know, I'm like, hold on. This comedian's coming. Like, I'm playing the Doug Fur in Portland, but this guy's coming through and playing the Aladdin or the Crystal Ballroom. Like, what's up with that? He <laughs> right. doesn't have a TV show. He doesn't. So I'm looking at it, and... It's because they have this platform with their listeners and no one can get in the way. There's no middleman. They get right. to communicate with their folks. And that was really exciting to me. And so I started listening. I wanted to find a podcast along the lines of the one that I'm doing right now and no one was doing it. And I was like, well, actually, that's not true. There's a guy named Chris Shiflett from the Foo Fighters who has a really good podcast and he's, he's doing one as well. But pretty much no one else is doing it. And I couldn't believe it. I felt like someone was playing a joke on me, but it was this wide open lane and it still is. Yeah. Wide, wide open. open You're lane. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about or thinking about? No, not much. I'm, I'm really glad you, thanks for coming over today and doing this. Yeah. Thank you so much. Joe Pug, thanks so much for being with us on the future of what? Thanks for watching. I've come to know the wish list of my father I've come to know the shipwrecks where he wished I've come to wish aloud among the overdressed crowd Come to witness now the sinking of the ship Throwing pennies from the sea top next to it And I've come to roam the forest past the village with a dozen lazy horses in my cart I've come here to get high To do more than just get by I've come to test the timber of my heart Oh, I've come to test the timber of my heart And I've come To be untroubled in my seeking And I've come 
nothing is for naught I've come to reach out blind To reach forward and behind For the more I seek, the more I'm sought Yeah, the more I seek, the more I'm sought To meet the sheriff and his posse To offer him the broadside of my jaw I've come here to get broke Then maybe bum a smoke We'll go drinking two towns over after all Well, we'll go drinking two towns over after all And I've come to meet the legendary takers I've only come to ask them for a lot Oh, they say I come with less than I should rightfully possess I say the more I buy, the more I'm bought And the more I'm bought, the less I cost And I've come to take their servants and their surplus And I've come to take their raincoats and their speed I've come to get my fill, to ransack and spill I've come to take the harvest for the seed I've come to take the harvest for the seed That you sleep in I've come to be the stranger That you keep I've come from down the road And my footsteps never slowed Before we met I knew we'd meet Before we met I knew we'd meet And I've come here To ignore your cries and heartaches I've come to closely Listen to you sing I've come here to insist that I leave here with a kiss I've come to say exactly what I mean And I mean so many things And you've come To know me stubborn as a butcher And you've come To know me thankless as a guest Recognize my face when God's awful grace Strips me of my jacket and my vest And reveals all the treasure in my chest That was Joe Pug. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. We're excited to announce that this podcast is a member of Jabberjaw Media, Jabberjaw Media is an independent talk and entertainment podcast network. Just this week, Jabberjaw added five new podcasts to the network, including two other new music-based podcasts, Poor Taste, a cocktail-focused podcast, and Too Old to Date, a scripted comedy podcast based in New York City. These shows add to the already amazing roster of music-based shows, which have been a part of the network since its inception. Head over to jabberjawmedia.com for more information on all the shows. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Elliot Smith, Silverstein, Joe Pug, and of course our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week.
This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.